Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Sexy Adventures, a nerd manual. We're here to talk about new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And no, we're not Dragon Sexy Robots and Sexy Adventures, but we are for today because we're talking about Outlander. Yeah, pairing it with her duo of Joy podcast, which we recorded two weeks ago. Yes. You can listen to wherever you find podcasts. Outlander is the story of Claire. It is. It's the story of you, Claire. No, I wish. Well, I don't wish. But she's a British combat nurse who, while on vacation with her husband in Scotland, gets thrown back in time from 1946 to 1743. How will she fare? Will she manage to survive in a different time period? Who is this handsome Jamie Fraser? Outlander was originally a book series written by Diana Gabaldon, which was first published in 1991. It was adapted into a TV show by Stars, the first season coming out in 2014, and since then there have been four seasons. The show stars Katrina Balf, Sam Ewan, Tobias Menzies, and many others. I'm going to talk about the genre of historical fiction. Kyle, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about Diana Gabaldon and uh, Ronald Moore a bit. Ronald Moore is the producer, showrunner, Ooh. and um, Diana Gabaldon wrote the book, as you just said. So, Fantastic. Well, I'll start us off. Yes. I ha- want to start with a question to you. I'm ready. Kyle, when you think of historical fiction, what comes to mind? Um, Honestly, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> okay. You know, it's like, uh, I know there's magic and stuff in there, so there's fantasy, but it's, it you know, it was a real time in on this earth, and the pirates did exist, and some of them were <laughs> kind of weird, like Johnny Depp. And <laughs> well, there is a lot of historical fiction about pirates. Yeah. So that's great. That's wonderful. I'm going to talk about, <laughs> I sound so dismissive. I don't mean to be. <laughs> that's great. That's wonderful, cool. you and your silly pirate movies. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about me. No, what I think about is my childhood bookshelf. Really? I had so many like teen or young adult books about you know historical fiction. Is your beloved Anne of Green Gables historical fiction? No, it's not. And okay. I'll explain why later. Okay. Um but I think of girls in pretty dresses going on adventures that were on the covers of all of the books. And I also think of books in the grocery store that had women in pretty but low-cut dresses that always enticed me, but I couldn't have quite explained why as a kid. <laughs> Adult Claire knows. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> so to I'm going to come back to that. Yeah. But I'm going to start with what I always do with the definition and try and define historical fiction. Now, a lot of this definition is pulled from a lecture by Bruce Holsinger, who is a professor at University of Virginia. Historical fiction is a genre of imaginative narrative set in the past whose authors make a deliberate effort to convey chronologically remote settings, cultures, and personages with accuracy, plausibility, and depth. Now, this is not to be confused with writing history, which is imaginative too. But with historical fiction, the writer and the audience knows the story that they're reading slash telling is fiction. Because when you're writing history, a lot of times you're filling in the blanks as well and assuming that this person thinks this or said this because of X, Y, and Z. Definitely. It's still imaginative and you still have to kind of push the boundaries of what might be true. Now, scholars debate whether historical fiction can be written in the recent past, where the audience will have experienced the events, or at least 50 to 60 years prior to 
when the event, like right now. Yeah. So like there's maybe debate over whether Forrest Gump is historical fiction. Well, when was it made? Um, I mean, it takes place throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s, but it was made in uh, the 90s. I think that's pushing it. Uh, A definition that I really liked is that it is written by the author in a time before they were born. Okay. And that makes the most sense to me. You have not experienced the events that you're writing about, so it's more fictionalized in your mind. Plausibility is considered the mark of great historical fiction by scholars and fans, most scholars and fans, I should say. And there is a difference between plausible and accurate. Convince your reader that this could have happened. So Naomi Novik's Temeraire series, is that plausible historical fiction? Definitely. (laughs) Where Napoleonic Wars with dragons, dragons. 100% plausible. But she does a very good job of writing it because you, if there were dragons in the Napoleonic Wars, I completely believe that this is how it would have happened. Yeah, it's well researched. 100%. Exactly. So you want to build and maintain a sustained illusion about the past. According to Professor Holsinger, to enjoy historical fiction, the reader has to have considerable knowledge of the historical period being written about. We need the written history because readers need to know the difference between what is made up and what is history. So I know that there were no dragons in Napoleonic times. I can deduce that that is made up. Okay. The rest of the little details might be true, and actually some of the things I know are true and some of the things I don't, but I think Naomi Novak is a good example where she is, it's so well-researched and it's so craftily put together that the lines can be blurred, and that makes it fun. Yeah. There are a lot of examples of famous pieces that could be the first piece of historical fiction. Uh, You know, maybe most scholars don't consider them to be, though, some of them being uh, A Knight's Tale by Chaucer about a knight who has fought in too many of the Crusades to possibly be true. Oh, yeah. Shakespeare's Cymbeline, a play about an ancient British king. But many historians argue that historical fiction really started in the 18th century or the late Renaissance and that these earlier stories are more fiction and fantasy than actual historical trying to be accurate fiction. Yes. During uh, the Renaissance, late Renaissance in the 18th century, the Enlightenment had happened, and there was a focus on education like there hadn't been before, and with that came an interest in history. Sir Walter Scott, who I knew as the writer of Ivanhoe, is considered by many scholars to have written the first quote-unquote real work of historical fiction, which is Waverly. The plot of Waverly is that it was written in 1814, and it is about Edward Waverly, and he is an English gentleman who joins the army during the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland. Hijinks ensue, and he eventually joins the Scottish side. That's really crazy because that's the same time period that Outlander takes place in. I kind of looked up whether she did that on purpose. I yeah. don't know if she did. I don't, I'm don't. i pretty sure she didn't from what I learned. Right. It's and kind of... Victor Hugo's uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, I guess, is early historical fiction as well. It is, but it came after Waverly, yeah. and I think he was influenced by yeah, Waverly. that's really cool. Now, Scott is using real historical events to explore a time through period through fiction. The reason I said real in quotes is like not just because of Shakespeare and Chaucer, but because a generation before Scott, there were other pieces of probably historical fiction being written, many by women. But some don't consider them historical fiction because they're either considered 
gothic and not historical fiction, or they say that the authors were writing with the values and sensibilities of their time, not with the values and sensibilities of the historical, historical time. time. Oh, really? That like, seems kind of split in hairs a little bit. It does, doesn't it? Uh, an example is Sophia Lee's Recess, which was written in 1783. It's about the fictional daughters of Mary, Queen of Scots, that were hidden from Queen Elizabeth and had interactions with prominent figures of Queen Elizabeth's court. That sounds exactly like Doesn't historical it? Doesn't fiction. Doesn't it sound exactly like historical fiction? So why is Waverly considered to be the first piece of historical fiction? I don't because it was a man and we live in a sexist world. Because of the of patriarchy? Terrible patriarchy? Maybe. What I actually think is that Waverly was an instant success and a major hit. The first okay. edition sold out in two days. It was beloved by critics and the public. And when you think of the scale of how popular Dickens' work was, I don't think it was quite that popular, but I think you could compare yeah. it a little bit. Yeah. Because it was so universally loved, it inspired a generation of writers, Balzac, Dickens, Okay. I mean, The Tale of Two Cities, yeah. Yeah. Dumas, um, and because it was Hugo. written in a different style that wasn't commonly used, it is given credit as the first. Do I think it is? No, but it was certainly very significant, and it certainly helped define the genre. Yeah. And for a long time, historical fiction was a masculine domain. But in the 20th century, it started to be seen as a woman genre. Um, a world-changing event happened at the beginning of the 20th century. Do you want to take a guess at what it was? Uh, World War One. Good job, yes. Yay! <laughs> I know my history. You're so good, Kyle. We are a history podcast. <laughs> Um, after World War I, there was a disillusionment with the powers that be. Many felt that they had sat back and let the younger generation die at the front. Beyond just—I'm going to talk about why it became a woman's medium, but beyond just women, there was an interest in history after World War I. There was this idea that if enough was learned about the past mistakes, conflicts could be avoided in the future. So— how did all this World War I and an interest in history change historical fiction into a women's genre? Well, during World War I, women became involved in society in the Western world in a way they hadn't been before. It was such a large-scale conflict that all the men were sent to be soldiers and women took the men's place at home. They worked in factories. They wrote for newspapers. They were nurses on the battlefields. And when the war was over, the men came back and the women were pushed out of these central roles. But it was too late. Women saw themselves as citizens. They had a taste of that power and that freedom. Delicious taste of freedom. <laughs> Hence the women's movement and them gaining the right to vote. And there was a rise of women enrolling in, inverse, uh, enrolling in universities, uh, many majoring in history and English because these were acceptable pursuits. And so how does this, again, circle around to historical fiction? Well, history is written by the victors. And we don't talk about this enough on our podcast, considering we're a history podcast. A lot of times it's written by the victors to justify how they became the victors. Yeah. And they don't write about those who are marginalized. And I don't even think that historians necessarily mean to leave out certain voices. They just might not think of them or not think of them as important, important compared enough. to these central events that are happening. Yeah. yeah, you know, Winston Churchill wrote a book and which kind of helped define World War One and how we see it, and it's because it was Winston Churchill's book. Right. You know, he was a victor, and he was such a big voice and name. And he didn't mention many women or I'm people of color. Sure, he didn't. Right. So, with historical fiction, and which which women were writing, and because they could be writers, and because they could study history, and that was considered acceptable, 
women could reimagine history where they were written into it. Some notable early examples are Gone with the Wind and Kristen Lavin's Daughter. And these are only a couple of the many works of historical fiction written by and written for women that came out after World War I. Partly because it became a woman's medium, historical fiction stopped being taken as seriously, or only certain works were taken seriously, and it was dismissed pretty frequently as a genre. Really? I want to read you how the Encyclopedia Britannica defines historical fiction, and this is on its website today. More often, it attempts to portray a a broader view of a past society in which great events are reflected by their impact on the private lives of fictional individuals. Since the appearance of the first historical novel, Sir Walter Scott's Waverley, this type of fiction has remained popular, though some historical novels, such as Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, are of the highest artistic quality. Many of them are written to mediocre standards. One type of historical novel is the purely escapist costume romance, which, making no pretense to historicity, uses a setting in the past to lend credence to improbable characters and adventures. Whoa, shots fired, Encyclopedia Britannica. Jesus, that's crazy. Yeah, that's That's the definition. That's really bad. No judgment. So, though I read countless articles about historical fiction being criticized for romancing earlier time periods for a modern audience, the example that I read a few times that I actually really liked was the modern middle-class readers loving the idea of being being a southern belle with servants waiting on them and wearing pretty dresses. By servants, do you mean slaves? It said servants in the definition. I think it's important for women to be able to see themselves in history. And if we're talking about romanticizing the past and making improbable characters that don't lend credence to historicity, men have been romancing their heroes in history for as long as we've had written language. Think about Troy, King Arthur, every Western. Yeah, every time it's a dude who's fighting all these battles, constantly winning and getting the girl at the end. And when I was a kid, I loved history. It was my favorite subject. I mean, it still is if I had to pick a subject. And historical fiction was a way for me to envision myself in whatever time period I was obsessed with. The same can be said for other people from marginalized backgrounds. Whether it's realistic or not, I think it's important that we see ourselves in the past to move forward because everyone was in the past. And I think that's easy to forget when it's not written down. And I believe if we try and remember, we can hope to accomplish more and record more, which, I mean, we already do because of the Internet Yeah. in the future. No, you're totally right. Everyone was in the past and everyone has a past. You know, we all came from somewhere and there's so many good stories from people of all different backgrounds. Right. And how do you see yourself there? You know, as a little girl, I saw myself as a little girl, you know, on the Titanic because I was obsessed with the Titanic. Yeah. Or like if you love pirates... You see yourself as a little girl, like, in a pirate historical romance mm-hmm. or something. Or not, not even romance, historical, historical romance. fiction, yeah. Yeah, it might have been a romance, yeah. but it could also just be fiction. It could have been a swashbuckling adventure. Right, which is very romanticized yeah. and not credi- uh, not what's credible. Yeah, um, not, you know, the Britannica doesn't think much of it. <laughs> it probably didn't happen. Yeah. But I yeah. still think it's fun to imagine it that way. Yeah. So that's my historical fiction segment. Very good, Claire. That was amazing. Thanks, that's, Kyle. It makes, it makes me sad, but it also makes me hopeful because I do feel like Outlander 
is giving some credit to the genre that maybe it lost over the years? It hasn't lost credit. Let me tell you, there are many historical fiction pieces that have been highly well-reviewed, highly well-received. Hillary Mantle's Wolf Hall is one of the most praised books of the early 2000s. And it is wonderful. I read it, and that TV show is one of my favorite TV shows ever made. So it's not that historical fiction, even historical fiction written by women, doesn't get praise. It's just that a lot of it gets dismissed. Yeah, and it has a history of being dismissed. Right, and I think that we should embrace it. Yeah, I agree. That was was amazing, Claire. Thank you. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Diana Gabaldone writing the book and Ronald Moore uh, making the show. So Mm -hmm. let me start with Diana and the writing of the novel. I'm excited. Yes, because she was writing in this genre. (laughs) Just like Sir Walter Scott. Yeah, just like Sir Walter Scott. What a coincidence that he would talk about historical fiction and I would be talking about a writer who writes historical fiction. (laughs) like we planned this or something. So Diana Diana Gabaldone was born in Arizona in the 1950s, and she grew up in Arizona, where her father worked as a state senator for a number number of years. Gabaldone would learn to read from a young age using Disney comics. Yes, comics about Disney characters, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy, those guys. Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. Exactly. Uh, Don't sing too long. We don't have, we need a rights to that song, Claire. (laughs) Um, So this would prove rather prescient, actually, because it would give Gabaldon one of her earlier writing gigs. Gabaldon apparently kept up her readership of Disney comics into her 20s, and she wrote a very rude letter to the comics creator, Del Connell. And this is a quote from an article titled BBC Outlander, author Diana Gabaldon on her love of comics by Stephen McKenzie. And she wrote in this letter, Dear Sir, I've been reading your comic books for the last 25 years, and they've been getting worse and worse. (laughs) I don't know that I could do better myself, but I'd like to try. (laughs) And Mackenzie asked her to submit some comic strips, and he didn't end up taking the first one, but he did take the second, and the third, and the fourth, and Gabaldon would write for Disney Comics for about three years. Wow. You know, I don't think that would happen now because so many people on Twitter just diss everything I that know. you would never reach out to someone who wrote criticism because you'd be scared that they wanted to kill this, you. It was a simpler time, wasn't it, Claire? <laughs> so it was the Jacobite rebellions. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> a complex, simpler time. Um, so she mainly wrote the characters Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, and another prescient thing in Disney comics, the Scottish grouch Scrooge McDuck. Oh, he's he, my favorite. And he would actually be the basis for Jamie Fraser. No. Of course not. No, Scrooge <laughs> McDuck, he's the worst. <laughs> Jamie Fraser's a hot Scottish man. Scrooge McDuck is a mean old duck. <laughs> maybe there's some overlap there, but I don't, maybe subconsciously <laughs> there was some influence there. But uh, she, I couldn't find an article where she admitted to it. So this was... Gab- Were you combing the <laughs> I was internet? just combing the internet. <laughs> when does she compare Jamie Fraser to Scrooge McDuck? <laughs> So this was Gabaldon's foray into fiction, but it wasn't the first or only thing that she was writing. She was also writing software reviews and technical articles for computer publications. Very different from Disney Comics. It sure is. Did I mention that she is a PhD and has three degrees in science? Wow. Yeah, crazy. Yep, Diana, Diana Gabaldon holds a bachelor's in zoology, a master's in marine biology, and a PhD in behavioral ecology which is the evolutionary behavior of animals due to ecological pressure. Super fascinating. And I feel like you can kind of see her basis in science in at least the first Outlander book. Like, there's a lot on plants. 
There's a yeah. lot of like there is a kind of a technical writing side to it. Claire knows so much more than she should about Claire, plants. Claire knows a lot. Well, it's, it was like a hobby tour in the book, you know. Yeah. I could see it. We can talk about it. Keep yeah. going. So in the late 80s, Gabaldon decided she would like to try to learn how to write a novel. So instead of taking a class or going on a retreat or something, she just decided to write one. And she was trying to figure out what would be the easiest kind of book for her to write, and she settled on a really research-heavy historical fiction. Mm-hmm. But as a scientist, that makes sense. Exactly. It makes sense. Um, she had a PhD. She worked in a research library. She knew how to research well and efficiently, and so it worked really well for her. And when referring to her inspiration for using 1740s Scotland, she says she caught an old Doctor Who rerun where the doctor picked up a companion named Jamie from 70s, 1740s Scotland, not Scrooge McDuck, and she thought he looked pretty good. So voila, Outlander. <laughs> Nothing to do with historical fiction and all that research she put into it and she, Sir Walter Scott well, writing, writing Waverly. No, I mean, she literally says in interviews, she was like, I thought he looked kind of fetching. Or pretty fetching is what she always says. And so, you know, men in kilts, hot. And then she started jumping, researching more and more into Jacobite Rebellion in 1740s Scotland. So she originally was going to keep the story in the 1740s, but every time she wrote a scene with Claire, the main character, she kept hearing more modern words and ideas come out of Claire's mouth. And she says that the character Claire kind of forced her to change the novel. She was like, Claire must be from the future. Duh, it'll be a time travel novel. Um, I also want to mention that while writing this book, Gabaldon had never once set foot in Scotland. She'd never been there. You know, she doesn't have any Scottish heritage. Uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> so in the late 80s, early 90s, Gabaldon shared an excerpt um, from her book on a CompuServe literary forum in the early days of the Internet. Um, CompuServe was like the early and internet. And as a scientist, yeah. it makes sense that, of course, she was on the internet. Exactly. Um, and the excerpt was shown to—she showed this excerpt to win an argument that she was having with some dude on this forum who said he understood what childbirth was like. He was trying to write a childbirth scene, and, and he, she was like, no, it's nothing like that. And they got in an argument, so she showed him this scene, this childbirth scene that she had written that was from Outlander. And someone else on the forum, an author named John E. Stith, read it, and was so impressed that he introduced her to his literary agent. Now, I want to say that she was writing this book, Outlander, to figure out how to write a novel. She never really intended it, or intended to show it to anyone. She thought, this will be my first novel. I know I want to write novels. I know I'm meant to write novels. I'm 36, and Mozart died when he was 36, so I better start <laughs> writing novels. But she didn't think that this one was going to be the one that she, like, floated out. This was mm-hmm. just the one that she would do, the bad one she would do before she did a good one. By the way, by the way, that childbirth description is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this agent that she met was impressed enough to give her a trilogy deal, and the books blew up after that, and the first one was published in 1991. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that they were that old, honestly. Yeah. Um, now they I wanna... had a huge fan base when it was being turned into a TV show. I remember yeah. that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Gabaldon's writing process and her take on characters, because I think her take on characters is pretty interesting. Firstly, she doesn't write her books in a linear fashion. She thinks of dramatic scenes and pieces of a story and writes those, and then follows lines from those uh, to piece together all the dramatic moments and scenes in the book. Uh, it's a process that she says, quote, infuriates people. She says that there is no right way to write a book. It's not like building a house because there is no gravity in the mind after all. I can make the roof and just leave it hanging there until I have time to build walls under it. 
And this is a quote from her from Gavaldon's website, and it's an excerpt from an interview on Wattpad done by Molly Rogers. Um, And her views on characters I really like. And this is all from her website, once again, from that interview with Molly Rogers. She says there's three types of characters. You have your onions, your mushrooms, and your hard nuts. Now, an onion is a person whose essence I apprehend immediately. But the more I work with him or her, and by work with I mean write stuff involving them, the more layers they develop and the more rounded and pungent they become. Okay. And so Claire and Jamie from Outlander are onions. That makes sense. Now, mushrooms are the characters who simply pop up out of nowhere and walk off with any scene they're in. And uh, Murtaugh, she mentions, is is kind of a mushroom for her. And then there's the hard nuts, and the hard nuts tend to be the people I'm stuck with rather than the ones who just show up in my head, either for plot reasons. And she says, for an example, I had a, a woman pregnant at the end of one book, so when I rejoined her 20 years later, obviously I had a young adult in addition to deal with who she didn't really care about. She was like, oh, who is this person? I got to deal with this person. Or a hard nut can also be someone that was real historic, a real historical person um, who were present during an event or period. Then I just hammer on them until they break open and reveal something of their inner selves to me. That's a fun way to look at it. It is. It is. And she mentions, now I haven't read all the Outlander books, but I guess this is a minor spoiler. They meet George Washington and Martha Washington mm. much later. You know, there's eight books out. But it also makes sense the way that she writes that she would have some characters who she just knows exactly what to yes. do with and others because she has this idea that she's just thrown in there. Yeah. But then, oh, no, what do I do with it once I have it down? Yeah. And it was it was really cool watching her talk about her process and reading about her talk about her process where she'll learn about a battle that takes place around that time that's an important battle that she wants to uh, use in a story. So she'll read a bunch of books on that battle, research a bunch of information about it. She'll find an officer in the battle with the last name of Fraser. She'll be like, oh, well, that's Jamie's cousin. <laughs> and she'll and she'll find out that that officer died. And she's like, well, now Jamie's going to be at his cousin's bedside as he dies in this battle. And she researches a little more and she realizes, oh, they are not sure where the body of this officer was buried. And that's because Jamie and Claire had to take this body back to Scotland to be buried in some tomb. Oh, and she really researches fun. some tomb. Yeah, it's like it's like following... You're you're following breadcrumbs to this place that you don't even know exists yet. It's so fun. And it's, it sounds so you too. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. You're like you find these little hints, and you're like, oh, maybe this goes here, and then we yeah. go here, and what happens there? Uh, so it's it's just really cool. Now, Gabaldon ch- says she has fielded offers for options for a long time for her books. And an option, of course, is when a studio buys the right to something to turn mm-hmm. it into a movie. And in the '90s, it was never an option for a, a show. It was always an option for a two-hour movie. And she says she always thought that was impossible. She would look at her 37-hour-long <laughs> book and be like, there's no way this can be a two-hour movie. It's too complicated. I won't be happy with it. And she says it has been optioned three times, but obviously that ne- none of those times ever made it to screen until Ronald Moore. And Gab- uh, Gabaldon says that Ronald Moore was a great person to have creator series. Like, it was kind of the perfect fit for I'm her. happy she waited. Can you imagine it as a movie? There was Catherine Heigl. Remember Catherine Heigl? Yeah. From 27 Dresses? She was maybe going to be in the Outlander movie back when mm. she was still a, a big Hollywood name. Can you imagine a, mm. an Outlander mo- movie with Katherine Heigl playing Claire? I mean, I can. I don't think it would have been particularly great. And that was a lot of times when people did talk to her for options. They would say, well, of course, we need to get a Scottish guy for Jamie, but I think we'll use all Americans for the rest of the cast. And that's when she would immediately be like, nope, sorry, goodbye. 
Not for you. <laughs> I'd be okay with that as long as they do a good job. I feel like British play Americans all the time. Yeah, that's true. As long as you that's get good true. actors, it's fine. That's true. Now, Ronald Moore, who produces the show and is a showrunner, is no stranger to long-format shows. Um, he worked on Star Trek The Next Generation as a writer, then a script editor, then a co-producer, and then finally, for the, its final season, a producer. So he like, kind of climbed that ladder yeah. on one show. And, and Star Trek The Next Generation is, is a great show. Moore would go on to work as a producer and writer on Deep Space Nine, which is the next Star Trek show, and Star Trek Voyager. But it was his post-Star Trek career that really launched him to a different level, and he worked on something that I think is beloved, I know, by myself and our producer James, and I'm about to find out if it was a big deal for you. I feel like I'm being tested. Yes, yes, this is a test. No, it's not a test. Um, But he was the writer and and a, uh, a big part of Battlestar Galactica. I, it's something that I know I need to watch, and I know I'll love. I haven't seen it, though. I was looking up episodes that he wrote, and he wrote pretty much all the good ones. <laughs> um, he wrote the first two episodes, which are is the maybe the best, or one of the best launches of a series ever. And um, the second episode that he wrote, 33, won him an Emmy. And 33 is so cool. It's one of the coolest things I've seen on TV. Now, Ronald was looking for a new passion project after Battlestar ended, and his wife and his producing partner both recommended he read the Outlander books, which he did, and he really loved them. And Gabaldon says that he was the first person to talk to her about optioning the books that seemed to understand them and that she, like, knew had read them. Because mm-hmm. they say that there's, you know, people will come and they'll say that they've read the book, but you can tell that they haven't, but they're just trying to buy the option because mm-hmm. they know it's a big deal. Um, but with, with Ronald... Moore, they knew, she knew that he had read those books. Um, And Moore says that when he pitched the idea to stars, he left a stack of all eight books with them, and he didn't expect them to read, but he thought maybe they'd flip through them a little bit. And he said the the people at stars read the books too, and after reading, which he said was unheard of, and that after reading those books, they were like, yeah, let's do this. We'll give you all the money you want. Stars is an interesting network. It sure is. Now, Outlander has had four seasons so far and is planned up to a sixth season. The book series is eight books now, and uh, it's planned to be ten, and Gabaldon says she knows exactly how it will end, even though she kind of writes in a non-linear <laughs> format. That was really interesting. That's cool that he really—I mean, it makes sense. Watching the show, obviously, they have a lot of love for the you story. You can tell. Yeah, yeah, you can tell the people working on it like the story a lot. Though I think in this day and age, you can't not have love for the story. Yeah. That's the, so popular and make a TV show. Yeah. Actually, you can't not have love for the TV show you're making. The audience is going to smell you out. Yeah, I agree. So now we go to our opinions, and we're going to compare this to Jiral of Joyri. Yes. So what's our first question? Which, if you haven't listened to that episode, feel free to go back and listen, but it's one of the first female characters in fantasy written by a female, and she's a barbarian knight that just charges into action and she's pulpy and awesome and it's in france and do you think it technically counts as historical fiction yeah i think it does i think it could i think i mean it's fantasy it is fantasy um so how do these two compare why did we link them and did it make sense to link them and we were unsure if it did make sense to compare these two things one is kind of a precursor to the other when we did gerald of joyry well, doing this research, and I'm going to say it, this was my idea. Outlander was something I really wanted to do. I'm so happy you oh, decided Kyle, to do this, too. I'm, I'm so happy you're so happy. I was reading interviews with Diana Gabaldon, and she kept saying Star Trek. 
Yeah. Oh, no, not Star Trek. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Was her inspiration. And yeah. I was like, we can't do Doctor Who. This isn't what I want to link. <laughs> I was looking at other pieces of historical fiction, but because Outlander is also fantasy, and I think she actually classifies it as a fantasy as well. She does. I I was having a lot of problems finding an earlier work that kind of directly referenced it. So I was thinking about what makes Outlander so special and why I really wanted to look at it for our podcast. And it's because it's written for women by a woman. So I went back and looked at some of the earlier pieces of fiction written by a woman, about a woman, presumably for women. I mean, and men. Obviously, Outlander can be watched and enjoyed by men. And that's why I came up with Giral of Joyri. Um, I... I think they compare really well, actually, and I think you're right. We, we Going into this, we were so unsure because I hadn't read Outlander. I'd watched a bit of the show, and I hadn't read Giral of Joyry. But once we did the Giral episode, I was like, oh, I think this can kind of work. And then reading Outlander, watching the show and doing the research, it definitely works. Like, there's a clear through line from C.L. Moore to Diana Gabaldon, I think, especially when you put it in that context of historical fiction being written by women and not getting the respect that maybe it deserves because C.L. Moore faced the same sort of thing with pulp. I mean, a lot of the pulp writers did, um, but we looked at C.L. Moore and it's 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 totally there. Like, there's a lot of similarities. I think today she doesn't get the respect she deserves because those stories are really good. Yeah, I agree. Um, but Diana Gabaldon, now in this genre that was kind of getting poo-pooed for a while is enjoying a lot of great success in it as a woman writing for women. She does enjoy a lot of great success. I don't think she enjoys a lot of acclaim. Outlander, the TV show, enjoys acclaim, but the books don't. Yeah, that's true. Now, we only read the first book. Right, and I have heard that they go off the rails a little bit. I can't testify to it. I've heard some plot lines that make me believe that they go off the rails a little bit, which I'm not going to get into here. Yeah. But I did really enjoy the first book. And for body historical fiction, it is incredibly well-researched, incredibly well thought out. Yeah. Just super interesting to read. And the thing is, neither James nor Kyle, I'm going to call you out, you weren't excited for my choice. Nope. Nope. And I, uh, go on. Anyway, and I was reading Outlander first, and I kept thinking... Kyle's going to really like this. This is very historically accurate. This yeah. has a lot of interesting tidbits about Jacobean, uh, Jacobean Scotland or the Jacobite yeah, Rebellion. Yeah, Jacobite Rebellion. Um, and I knew you would like it. And I kept telling you, I think you're going to like it. And you still hadn't picked up. I know. I was <laughs> dreading it. I was like, ugh. Uh, but no, you were totally right. The verse book was great. I really liked it. It was a little long, but I, I enjoyed it pretty much the whole thing. I really like the aesthetic. I like the time period. It's very, I don't know if any if you guys know Rob Roy, but it's kind of the same time period as Rob Roy and, you know, Scottish Highlands and swords and muskets and dibbidi doobidi dabada. Like daddyo, that's whiskey in the jar. Like it reminds me of that and it's really fun and Claire's a great character. And a great person. And a great person. Well, no, she's okay. And Jamie is is hot. Jamie's so hot. Um, She does, and the romance is is great. And it's, and the book, it's not over the top. It's It's not. It's just, it's a marriage being worked out. Yeah, it's not, and it's earned. So in in my line of work, I work in audiobooks and I, I engineer and record them, and I read a lot of romance novels, and I, I when you suggested Outlander, I guess in my mind I conjured up, you know, maybe like the worst erotica period romance that I've ever had to work on for my job. 
And I was like, oh, it's just going to be like that. I don't know why I thought that because this book was so good. It was so well researched. And the the relationship and the love and the sex, I think, was handled really well and in like a way that felt meaningful. I heard she also based Jamie kind of on her husband. That's adorable. Yeah, that's, that's really, really nice. cute. So what's our next question? Our next question, which I think we answered in our, our tangent, but um, has our view on Outlander changed having done all this extensive research? Uh, I think so. I appreciate it more. I mean, that tends to be the case for most of the stuff we research. This is true. I, the yes is normally the answer to that question, but... I really do appreciate the work that she put into it. Me too. And I appreciate that the show has done so well and that they took something that might not necessarily be appreciated by the modern elite audience and made it good yeah, and acceptable. The production value on that show is amazing. They put it's, money into it. It's very good. And in a lot of interviews, they, they it gets compared to Game of Thrones a lot, mm-hmm. which um, I think there is a comparison to be made there. Um, they're both pretty gritty and they're both dark and Outlander at times is really hard to watch for just from an uncomfortable perspective. But I feel like they handle their dark themes and their violent themes in a much more responsible and tactful way than Game of Thrones does. You know, there's there's rough stuff in Outlander. There's rape, but it doesn't feel in this. It's handled differently. And I think in a much better way than rape in Game of Thrones is, which is a little more for shock value. I think it's because that they have so many women writers and it is being made for women. Yeah. And I might be wrong and tell me if you think differently, audience, please. But I think when you have all these different voices coming at it, you have to come at it from a different dire- different directions and you have to look at it from multiple different angles. And there have to be women in that writing room. I yeah. don't know. But I can tell you that that script is not written by just men. Yeah, there are definitely women in the writer's room, which I learned. And uh, the women in the writer's room, they refer to Jamie as the king of all men. <laughs> And uh, and uh, there are men in that writing writers room as well, and they they're like don't love the phrase because they're constantly getting compared to Jamie. And Jamie is a great hero, like he's a great Jamie's romance book hero yeah. in a but in a real way. Like I've read a lot of romance books, and there's just these douchey protagonist men, and Jamie's not that. Like I really feel for Jamie. He I has like Jamie more. And he has more of a character than a lot of. I I work in audiobooks too, not as often as Kyle. He has more character than most romance heroes. I do think he's a little bit too good to be true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's the king of all men. He's the king of all men. Yeah. But like you said, women are writing him. Women are writing Claire. Women are writing these scenes. Oh, why not write some fantasy? Oh, definitely. Men write John Wayne characters. I know. We write John Wayne characters and we write, you know, like buxom barmaids that are like hanging on your every dull and uninteresting word yeah we get jamie (laughs) you guys get jamie (laughs) so uh our last question is would we recommend um you know joining these you know reading gerald joyry and outlander together if you hadn't if you've read one going and reading the other i think yes honestly yes read them together yeah, read, read it them together. together. Watch, read Jarelle of Joyry, and then just watch Outlander if you don't want to read it. It is a long book. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I think you Jarelle of Joyry should be read more. It should be. It needs more. It it needs more acclaim. <laughs> Outlander's getting some, you know, yeah. gets acclaim. Um, but I think as a way to look back at early female fantasy heroines, and Jarelle is so different from Claire. Yeah. But it's also fun to see. It's fun to see a female protagonist written with a 30s sensibility 
but written by a female. Yeah, written by a woman. Which is so rare to see. And then it's fun to see another female protagonist written with more modern sensibilities for a woman. Yeah. And how they're different, but also similar. How they're, the, the way that other characters view them is similar too. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I think that's one of the big similarities between Jirel and Outlander is that the other characters in the book are viewing the the main protagonist woman in the kind of a similar light. Like the gaze feels familiar. Mm-hmm. The gaze feels feminine. Yeah, and it's it's really there's cool. no ass shots. No, yeah, no butt shots. No, no Scarlett Johansson in a tight Black Widow suit butt shots yeah. put in there. You know, to keep people's eyes on the screen because they don't need it. And I I want to say this isn't a question, but I subscribe to Stars for Outlander. Yeah. I subscribed to Stars for Ash vs. Evil Dead, and I kept it for Outlander. <laughs> one of the funny things, this is just a little tidbit, one of the funny things in an interview um, that came up was someone asked Ronald Moore if, you know, Stars ever told him to tone back the violence, because it is mm, violent or the gore. Um, and he said, he was like, no, Stars has never given us a note like that. Uh, they're kind of like the the place for violence and gore. And in my head, I was thinking like, yeah, Ash versus Evil Dead right. is on this. And it's a thing that people say, oh, women don't want to watch violence. Women don't want to watch gore. And some don't, but some men don't either. Yeah. And we don't mind it, I think, as a rule, as long as it fits into our stories well yeah. or the story well. I think it's when it's just there for violence's sake. And I, I love Game of Thrones. Yeah. But sometimes... It's too much, I it's agree. It's too much. Um, I mean, I, I like Ashes vs. Evil Dead. That's too much for me, but that's on purpose. <laughs> but that's too much in a fun way, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, I, I do also want to mention that Ronald Moore says, according to their polls and numbers, and I forgot to put this in my segment, that the viewership is about half-half, 50-50. Mm, it's you know? a great show. Yeah, it, it is It is a good show. And Diana Gabaldon does say, I heard in an interview, she said, watch the show and then read the book. I did appreciate the show having watched it. And then reading the book, yeah, which is rare. A lot yeah. of times, if I, I, I prefer the book to anything else, but I feel like they kind of enhanced each other. Yeah, Claire, any final thoughts on Outlander and Jiral? No, but I did want to say that the reason Anna Green Gables is in historical fiction is because it was written in a period that the author had lived. I said I would get to it, <laughs> so let's come full circle. <laughs> and that's our podcast on Anna Green Gables. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could leave a rate or review on iTunes. It really does help the show out a lot. You can find our show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at along with Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Outlander and Diana Gabaldon and Ronald Moore and historical fiction on our Facebook and Twitter, where we're going to be posting some of the articles we used for our show. And I I just want to say that we do have an Instagram now as well. Our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are all pretty much the same thing. DSRA Podcast. And if you have any thoughts on Outlander or historical fiction, please let us know. We'd love to discuss it with you. Yeah. Maybe argue that Anna Green Gables is historical fiction. It's not. Our producer is not quite as sexy as Jamie Frazier, but his name is Jamie. It's James Foey. 
Our logo was done by Patty Highland, who I think of uh, our group of friends, if Patty was spirited back 200 years in the past, she might be kind of the best suited to handle it. <laughs> um, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is from the future. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks when we talk about the journey to the West.